Chapter Three, Part B of the Wealth of Nations, Book Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book Four, Chapter Three, Part B. Of the extraordinary restraints upon the importation of goods of almost all kinds from those countries with which the balance is supposed to be disadvantageous. Part two of the unreasonableness of those extraordinary restraints upon other principles. In the foregoing part of this chapter, I have endeavored to show, even upon the principles of the commercial system, how unnecessary it is to lay extraordinary restraints upon the importation of goods from those countries with which the balance of trade is supposed to be disadvantageous. Nothing, however, can be more absurd than this whole doctrine of the balance of trade, upon which not only these restraints, but almost all the other regulations of commerce are founded. When two places trade with one another, this doctrine supposes that, if the balance be even, neither of them either loses or gains. But if it leans in any degree to one side, that one of them loses, and the other gains, in proportion to its declension from the exact equilibrium. Both suppositions are false. A trade, which is forced by means of bounties and monopolies, may be, and commonly is, disadvantageous to the country in whose favor it is meant to be established as I shall endeavor to show hereafter. But that trade which, without force or constraint, is naturally and regularly carried on between any two places, is always advantageous, though not always equally so to both. By advantage or gain I understand not the increase of the quantity of gold and silver, but that of the exchangeable value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country, or the increase of the annual revenue of its inhabitants. If the balance be even, and if the trade between the two places consist altogether in the exchange of their native commodities, they will, upon most occasions, not only both gain, but they will gain equally, or very nearly equally. Each will, in this case, afford a market for a part of the surplus produce of the other. Each will replace a capital which had been employed in raising and preparing for the market this part of the surplus produce of the other, and which had been distributed among, and given revenue and maintenance to, a certain number of its inhabitants. Some part of the inhabitants of each, therefore, will directly derive their revenue and maintenance from the other. As the commodities exchanged, too, are supposed to be of equal value, so the two capitals employed in the trade will, upon most occasions, be equal or very nearly equal, and both being employed in raising the native commodities of the two countries, the revenue and maintenance which their distribution will afford to the inhabitants of each will be equal or very nearly equal. This revenue and maintenance, thus mutually afforded, will be greater or smaller in proportion to the extent of their dealings. If these should annually amount to one hundred thousand pounds, for example, or to one million pounds on each side, each of them will afford an annual revenue, in the one case of one hundred thousand pounds, and in the other of one million pounds, to the inhabitants of the other. If their trade should be of such a nature that one of them exported to the other nothing but native commodities, while the returns of that other consisted altogether in foreign goods, the balance in this case would still be supposed even commodities being paid for with commodities. They would, in this case, too, both gain, but they would not gain equally, 
and the inhabitants of the country which exported nothing but native commodities would derive the greatest revenue from the trade if england for example should import from france nothing but the native commodities of that country and not having such commodities of its own as were in demand there should annually repay them by sending thither a large quantity of foreign goods tobacco we shall suppose and east india goods this trade though it would give some revenue to the inhabitants of both countries would give more to those of france than to those of england the whole french capital annually employed in it would annually be distributed among the people of france but that part of the english capital only which was employed in producing the english commodities with which those foreign goods were purchased would be annually distributed among the people of england the greater part of it would replace the capitals which had been employed in virginia Indostan and china and which had given revenue and maintenance to the inhabitants of those distant countries if the capitals were equal or nearly equal therefore this employment of the french capital would augment much more the revenue of the people of france than that of the english capital would the revenue of the people of england france would in this case carry on a direct foreign trade of consumption with england whereas england would carry on a roundabout trade of the same kind with france the different effects of a capital employed in the direct and of one employed in the roundabout foreign trade of consumption have already been fully explained there is not probably between any two countries a trade which consists altogether in the exchange either of native commodities on both sides or of native commodities on one side and of foreign goods on the other almost all countries exchange with one another partly native and partly foreign goods that country however in whose cargoes there is the greatest proportion of native and the least of foreign goods will always be the principal gainer if it was not with tobacco and east india goods but with gold and silver that england paid for the commodities annually imported from france the balance in this case would be supposed uneven commodities not being paid for with commodities but with gold and silver the trade however would in this case as in the foregoing give some revenue to the inhabitants of both countries but more to those of france than to those of england it would give some revenue to those of england the capital which had been employed in producing the english goods that purchased this gold and silver the capital which had been distributed among and given revenue to certain inhabitants of england would thereby be replaced and enabled to continue that employment the whole capital of england would no more be diminished by this exportation of gold and silver than by the exportation of an equal value of any other goods on the contrary it would in most cases be augmented no goods are sent abroad but those for which the demand is supposed to be greater abroad than at home and of which the returns consequently it is expected will be of more value at home than the commodities exported if the tobacco which in england is worth only one hundred thousand pounds when sent to france will purchase wine which is in england worth one hundred and ten thousand pounds the exchange will augment the capital of england by ten thousand pounds if one hundred thousand pounds of english gold in the same manner purchase french wine which in england is worth one hundred and ten thousand pounds this exchange will equally augment the capital of england by ten thousand pounds as a merchant who has one hundred and ten thousand pounds worth of wine in his cellar is a richer man than he who has only one hundred thousand pounds worth of tobacco in his warehouse so is he likewise a richer man than he who has only one hundred thousand pounds worth of gold in his coffers 
he can put into motion a greater quantity of industry and give revenue maintenance and employment to a greater number of people than either of the other two but the capital of the country is equal to the capital of all its different inhabitants and the quantity of industry which can be annually maintained in it is equal to what all those different capitals can maintain both the capital of the country therefore and the quantity of industry which can be annually maintained in it must generally be augmented by this exchange it would indeed be more advantageous for england that it could purchase the wines of france with its own hardware and broadcloth than with either the tobacco of virginia or the gold and silver of brazil and peru a direct foreign trade of consumption is always more advantageous than a roundabout one but a roundabout foreign trade of consumption which is carried on with gold and silver does not seem to be less advantageous than any other equally roundabout one neither is a country which has no mines more likely to be exhausted of gold and silver by this annual exportation of those metals than one which does not grow tobacco by the like annual exportation of that plant as a country which has wherewithal to buy tobacco will never be long in want of it so neither will one be long in want of gold and silver which has wherewithal to purchase those metals it is a losing trade it is said which a workman carries on with the alehouse and the trade which a manufacturing nation would naturally carry on with the wine country may be considered as a trade of the same nature i answer that the trade with the alehouse is not necessarily a losing trade in its own nature it is just as advantageous as any other though perhaps somewhat more liable to be abused the employment of a brewer and even that of a retailer of fermented liquors are as necessary divisions of labor as any other it will generally be more advantageous for a workman to buy of the brewer the quantity he has occasion for than to brew it himself and if he is a poor workman it will generally be more advantageous for him to buy it by little and little of the retailer than a large quantity of the brewer he may no doubt buy too much of either as he may of any other dealers in his neighborhood of the butcher if he is a glutton or of the draper if he affects to be a beau among his companions it is advantageous to the great body of workmen notwithstanding that all these trades should be free though this freedom may be abused in all of them and is more likely to be so perhaps in some than in others though individuals besides may sometimes ruin their fortunes by an excessive consumption of fermented liquors there seems to be no risk that a nation should do so though in every country there are many people who spend upon such liquors more than they can afford there are always many more who spend less it deserves to be remarked too that if we consult experience the cheapness of wine seems to be a cause not of drunkenness but of sobriety the inhabitants of the wine countries are in general the soberest people of europe witness the spaniards the italians and the inhabitants of the southern provinces of france people are seldom guilty of excess in what is their daily fare nobody affects the character of liberality and good fellowship by being profuse of a liquor which is as cheap as small beer on the contrary in the countries which either from excessive heat or cold produce no grapes and where wine consequently is dear and a rarity drunkenness is a common vice as among the northern nations and all those who live between the tropics the negroes for example on the coast of guinea when a french regiment comes from some of the northern provinces of france where wine is somewhat dearer to be quartered in the southern where it is very cheap the soldiers i have frequently heard it observed are at first debauched by the cheapness and novelty of good wine 
but after a few months residence the greater part of them become as sober as the rest of the inhabitants were the duties upon foreign wines and the excises upon malt beer and ale to be taken away all at once it might in the same manner occasion in great britain a pretty general and temporary drunkenness among the middling and inferior ranks of people which would probably be soon followed by a permanent and almost universal sobriety at present drunkenness is by no means the vice of people of fashion or of those who can easily afford the most expensive liquors a gentleman drunk with ale has scarce ever been seen among us the restraints upon the wine trade in great britain besides do not so much seem calculated to hinder the people from going if i may say so to the alehouse as from going where they can buy the best and cheapest liquor they favour the wine trade of portugal and discourage that of france the portuguese it is said indeed are better customers for our manufactures than the french and should therefore be encouraged in preference to them as they give us their custom it is pretended we should give them ours the sneaking arts of underling tradesmen are thus erected into political maxims for the conduct of a great empire for it is the most underling tradesmen only who make it a rule to employ chiefly their own customers a great trader purchases his goods always where they are cheapest and best without regard to any little interest of this kind by such maxims as these however nations have been taught that their interest consisted in beggaring all their neighbors each nation has been made to look with an invidious eye upon the prosperity of all the nations with which it trades and to consider their gain as its own loss commerce which ought naturally to be among nations as among individuals a bond of union and friendship has become the most fertile source of discord and animosity the capricious ambition of kings and ministers has not during the present and the preceding century been more fatal to the repose of europe than the impertinent jealousy of merchants and manufacturers the violence and injustice of the rulers of mankind is an ancient evil for which i am afraid the nature of human affairs can scarce admit of a remedy but the mean rapacity the monopolizing spirit of merchants and manufacturers who neither are nor ought to be the rulers of mankind though it cannot perhaps be corrected may very easily be prevented from disturbing the tranquillity of anybody but themselves that it was the spirit of monopoly which originally both invented and propagated this doctrine cannot be doubted and those who first taught it were by no means such fools as they who believed it in every country it always is and must be the interest of the great body of the people to buy whatever they want of those who sell it cheapest the proposition is so very manifest that it seems ridiculous to take any pains to prove it nor could it ever have been called in question had not the interested sophistry of merchants and manufacturers confounded the common sense of mankind their interest is in this respect directly opposite to that of the great body of the people as it is the interest of the freemen of a corporation to hinder the rest of the inhabitants from employing any workmen but themselves so it is the interest of the merchants and manufacturers of every country to secure to themselves the monopoly of the home market hence in great britain and in most other european countries the extraordinary duties upon almost all goods imported by alien merchants hence in great britain and in most other european countries the extraordinary duties upon almost all goods imported by alien merchants hence the high duties and prohibitions upon all those foreign manufactures which can come into competition with our own 
Hence, too, the extraordinary restraints upon the importation of almost all sorts of goods from those countries with which the balance of trade is supposed to be disadvantageous. That is, from those against whom national animosity happens to be most violently inflamed. The wealth of neighboring nations, however, though dangerous in war and politics, is certainly advantageous in trade. In a state of hostility, it may enable our enemies to maintain fleets and armies superior to our own. But in a state of peace and commerce, it must likewise enable them to exchange with us to a greater value and to afford a better market, either for the immediate produce of our own industry, or for whatever is purchased with that produce. As a rich man is likely to be a better customer to the industrious people in his neighborhood than a poor, so is likewise a rich nation. A rich man, indeed, who is himself a manufacturer, is a very dangerous neighbor to all those who deal in the same way. All the rest of the neighborhood, however, by far the greatest number, profit by the good market which his expense affords them. They even profit by his underselling the poorer workmen who deal in the same way with him. The manufacturers of a rich nation, in the same manner, may no doubt be very dangerous rivals to those of their neighbors. This very competition, however, is advantageous to the great body of the people, who profit greatly besides by the good market which the great expense of such a nation affords them in every other way. Private people, who want to make a fortune, never think of retiring to the remote and poor provinces of the country, but resort either to the capital or to some of the great commercial towns. They know that where little wealth circulates, there is little to be got, but that where a great deal is in motion, some share of it may fall to them. The same maxim which would in this manner direct the common sense of one, or ten, or twenty individuals, should regulate the judgment of one, or ten, or twenty millions, and should make a whole nation regard the riches of its neighbors as a probable cause and occasion for itself to acquire riches. A nation that would enrich itself by foreign trade is certainly most likely to do so when its neighbors are all rich, industrious, and commercial nations. A great nation, surrounded on all sides by wandering savages and poor barbarians, might, no doubt, acquire riches by the cultivation of its own lands and by its own interior commerce, but not by foreign trade. It seems to have been in this manner that the ancient Egyptians and the modern Chinese acquired their great wealth. The ancient Egyptians, it is said, neglected foreign commerce, and the modern Chinese, it is known, hold it in the utmost contempt, and scarce deign to afford it the decent protection of the laws. The modern maxims of foreign commerce, by aiming at the impoverishment of all our neighbors, so far as they are capable of producing their intended effect, tend to render that very commerce insignificant and contemptible. It is in consequence of these maxims that the commerce between France and England has, in both countries, been subjected to so many discouragements and restraints. If those two countries, however, were to consider their real interest, without either mercantile jealousy or national animosity, the commerce of France might be more advantageous to Great Britain than that of any other country, and for the same reason, that of Great Britain to France. France is the nearest neighbor to Great Britain. In the trade between the southern coast of England and the northern and northwest coast of France, the returns might be expected in the same manner as in the inland trade, four, five, or six times in the year. The capital, therefore, employed in this trade could, in each of the two countries, keep in motion four, five, or six times the quantity of industry and afford employment and subsistence to four, five, or six times the number of people, 
which all equal capital could do in the greater part of the other branches of foreign trade between the parts of france and great britain most remote from one another the returns might be expected at least once in the year and even this trade would so far be at least equally advantageous as the greater part of the other branches of our foreign european trade it would be at least three times more advantageous than the boasted trade with our north american colonies in which the returns were seldom made in less than three years frequently not in less than four or five years france besides is supposed to contain twenty-four million of inhabitants our north american colonies were never supposed to contain more than three million and france is a much richer country than north america though on account of the more unequal distribution of riches there is more poverty and beggary in the one country than in the other france therefore could afford a market at least eight times more extensive and on account of the superior frequency of the returns four and twenty times more advantageous than that which our north american colonies ever afforded the trade of great britain would be just as advantageous to france and in proportion to the wealth population and proximity of the respective countries would have the same superiority over that which france carries on with her own colonies such is the very great difference between that trade which the wisdom of both nations has thought proper to discourage and that which it has favored the most but the very same circumstances which would have rendered an open and free commerce between the two countries so advantageous to both have occasioned the principal obstructions to that commerce being neighbors they are necessarily enemies and the wealth and power of each becomes upon that account more formidable to the other and what would increase the advantage of national friendship serves only to inflame the violence of national animosity they are both rich and industrious nations and the merchants and manufacturers of each dread the competition of the skill and activity of those of the other mercantile jealousy is excited and both in flames and is itself inflamed by the violence of national animosity and the traders of both countries have announced with all the passionate confidence of interested falsehood the certain ruin of each in consequence of that unfavorable balance of trade which they pretend would be the infallible effect of an unrestrained commerce with the other there is no commercial country in europe of which the approaching ruin has not frequently been foretold by the pretended doctors of this system from all unfavorable balance of trade after all the anxiety however which they have excited about this after all the vain attempts of almost all trading nations to turn that balance in their own favor and against their neighbors it does not appear that any one nation in europe has been in any respect impoverished by this cause every town and country on the contrary in proportion as they have opened their ports to all nations instead of being ruined by this free trade as the principles of the commercial system would lead us to expect have been enriched by it though there are in europe indeed a few towns which in some respects deserve the name of free ports there is no country which does so holland perhaps approaches the nearest to this character of any though still very remote from it and holland it is acknowledged not only derives its whole wealth but a great part of its necessary subsistence from foreign trade there is another balance indeed which has already been explained very different from the balance of trade and which accordingly as it happens to be either favorable or unfavorable necessarily occasions the prosperity or decay of every nation this is the balance of the annual produce and consumption if the exchangeable value of the annual produce it has already been observed exceeds that of the annual consumption 
the capital of the society must annually increase in proportion to this excess. The society in this case lives within its revenue, and what is annually saved out of its revenue is naturally added to its capital, and employed so as to increase still further the annual produce. If the exchangeable value of the annual produce, on the contrary, falls short of the annual consumption, the capital of the society must annually decay in proportion to this deficiency. The expense of the society in this case exceeds its revenue and necessarily encroaches upon its capital. Its capital, therefore, must necessarily decay, and, together with it, the exchangeable value of the annual produce of its industry. This balance of produce and consumption is entirely different from what is called the balance of trade. It might take place in a nation which had no foreign trade, but which was entirely separated from all the world. It may take place in the whole globe of the earth, of which the wealth, population, and improvement may be either gradually increasing or gradually decaying. The balance of produce and consumption may be constantly in favor of a nation, though what is called the balance of trade be generally against it. A nation may import to a greater value than it exports for half a century, perhaps together. The gold and silver which comes into it during all this time may be all immediately sent out of it. Its circulating coin may gradually decay, different sorts of paper money being substituted in its place, and even the debts too, which it contracts in the principal nations with whom it deals, may be gradually increasing. And yet its real wealth, the exchangeable value of the annual produce of its lands and labor, may, during the same period, have been increasing in a much greater proportion. The state of our North American colonies, and of the trade which they carried on with Great Britain, before the commencement of the present disturbances, may serve as a proof that this is by no means an impossible supposition. End of Book 4, Chapter 3, Part B